Hi everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. I hope everybody's doing well wherever you are in the world. It is springish in my neighborhood. The sun is out, the flowers are in bloom, as are my allergies, and I have a little pep in my step despite the nasal congestion. But in these last few verdant weeks, I've been extremely fortunate to have made a few new acquaintances, and today I wanted you all to enjoy the wonderful King conversation I had with my new friend, mon nouvel ami, Simon B., Simon is a screen and stage actor, as well as the co-host to the King Size Pod with the equally delightful and magical Matt R. So for all of the lovers of King on screen, this episode is for you, my guys. Simon has a plethora of King adaptation knowledge, as well as an overflowing abundant source, uh, overflowing cup runneth over all the knowledge on the acting craft. And the best part, we also get to hear some of his talent specifically for impressions. It sneaks out a little bit. One of the impressions turned my blood cold, just a skosh. Uh, you'll find out why, but nevertheless, it was amazing. So, Mr. Simon B. is also incredibly and totally hysterical, and when it came to editing this episode, the majority of it was me silencing my own laughter, because it's just everywhere, guys. It's absolutely all over the place. I could not contain myself. But this is just the best, folks. This is so much fun. You're going to adore Simon. I hope you all enjoy my constant reader interview with actor and podcast co-host, Simon B. All right, everyone, please welcome to the show co-host of King Size Pond. This is my honored guest, Simon, Simon Balkan, Simon B, because we like to deal in, in code here uh, on the show. Uh, how are you, Simon? I'm feeling very well. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for your kind invitation onto the show. Um, I'm sorry, Simon A couldn't be here this evening, but um, <laughs> something happened on the way to the podcast and he's not able to join you this evening so Simon B it is. <laughs> well welcome welcome Simon B. Um, we'll have to talk later about what sort of clandestine fate happened to Simon A but I'm thrilled to have you with us on the show and really excited to chat King with you. You are my constant reader interview. We always start these interviews with the the first question of where did your king journey begin um how old were you when this whole thing started well i think trying to pin down my exact age made me realize that the answer to the question is far too young because one of one of the first one of the first uh, pieces of stephen king material i can remember being exposed to in any way is watching salem's lot on telly uh, this is the mini series which was um broadcast in 1979 okay so i'm thinking about this and i think if it was broadcast in the states in 1979 that means that the uk must have had it a, a year maybe 18 months or so later and if i remember watching bits of salem's lot when it was on telly when i was a child and it was broadcast let, let's be generous let's say 1981 then that means that I was about seven or eight years old. And I think that might be a bit too young to watch something like Salem's Lot. 
Don't you think? I mean, if you had an eight-year-old, would you let them watch Salem's Lot? Well, um, <laughs> well, so I, no, no, I, well, so I have not seen that adaptation looking back. I know, I know, I know for shame. I've seen no, no, the no, no, you're, you're in for a treat. That's what I mean. I hope you're in for an absolute Yay! treat. I've seen the Rob Lowe one. Was that like a 94 one? Which one was that? Yeah, one? that was, yeah, I think that was the, the mid nineties. Is that the one with, um, Donald Sutherland? Yep. Yes, 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 yes. You're correct. And is he, uh, is he playing? straker in that or is oh. he playing is is he barlow i don't remember i don't know because i've not that's one i've not seen yeah that one i checked out that i would not let an eight-year-old watch however look, with your knowledge of the the early one is it a little too spooky where should, should did you sneak watch it like were you allowed to watch it or i just think i had really sort of negligent parents because I really shouldn't have been watching it, but I know I, I know I saw it as a child. Maybe, maybe I'm being a little unfair on my parents because I think I must have seen it sort of later down the line. I'm sure because I know what Dad said about it, and it made my dad scared enough to not be able to go outside and lock the chickens up because we lived on a farm. Okay, we lived on a farm, and every night he he would go um, go out up the up the hill a little way and lock the chickens up because if you didn't lock the chickens up and the foxes got in there in the night it was just a bloodbath oh god and he'd watch salem's lot he'd watch the first part of this miniseries and he would not go outside in the dark and lock the chickens up like he'd done a hundred times before <gasps> no tonight tonight they can take the they're on their own they can take their chances i'm not going out oh my god <laughs> wow and my dad is not a cowardly man, I should say. I'm, he's not a, you know, he's not a, um, a chicken, if you will, <laughs> um, at all. But, they, you know, you see things that kind of shake you up. But that was my introduction to Stephen King, was, was seeing bits of, uh, of Salem's Lot. So the visual came a long time before the, before the writing. And I didn't start reading any of Stephen King until I was about, I think, 14 or 15. Okay. And somebody at school was reading it. Um, and I thought that that looks that looks good. And he, what do you say? It's about a clown that eats children. Oh, that sounds great. But look at the bloody size of that book. Oh, and, and I am a coward. So I looked at the size, I looked at the size of, of the of the novel and I went, I think I'll start with something a bit more accessible. So I started with Skeleton Crew. That was my first Stephen King novel. So the first story of his I ever read was The Mist. So The Mist was my introduction to Stephen King, essentially. And as you know, because I believe you've read and seen The Mist. Yes, just recently. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes, just recently. I just read Skeleton Crew for the very first time, like two months ago. So this is amazing. Wow. Yeah, so it's a terrific story. It really is a, a ride. As anybody that's listened to King Size episode on the mist will also be able to attest, I have some pretty strong feelings about the film. Mostly good feelings, but there's a huge amount of conflict going on there as well. But um, it's a fabulous film. I would, I would definitely say watch the film. I'd also say read read the the novella it's based on. But that's where I started, um, being terrified by Mr. Barlow, being also quite terrified by the uh, experiences of David Drayton. Yeah. 
Oh man, The Mist must have been a wonderful first introduction to King. But I wonder, my next question is, is did your schoolmates tell you that he was a horror author or did you just know because you saw Barlow at the tender age and then you you picked up Skeleton Crew and you must have thought, oh, well, is this, this guy's spooky spooky. Um, so did you know that he was a horror author or did you kind of discover that? Well, no, I think that was my expectation. And I think particularly at that age, I was not really very sophisticated. So I, I didn't know that you could just be a storyteller. I didn't know that any, but that I, I, I expected that you had to sort of put yourself into a genre and that was it. And that's where you stay. That was all you did. So if you're a horror writer, the only thing you write is horror. <laughs> it's, all, it's all It's all about horror. There can't be any sort of, there can't be any love in these in these stories and there can't be um any sort of fun it's all about the horror and that's I, I've, I've subsequently adjusted that opinion and i think that's true of some writers probably because that's more more what they're aiming for but i don't think it's it's true of stephen king at all i i think he's an astounding storyteller yes and most of a lot of the stories that he 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 tells uses elements of the supernatural, but but not all of them. I mean, if he, I think he said himself, you know, I just write what excites and interests me. And if people want to call me a horror writer, they can call me a horror writer. If they want to call me a thriller writer, they can call me a thriller writer. I don't care so long as they don't call me late for dinner, and so long <laughs> as the text clear. I love that about King as well. Um, so after you read Skeleton Crew, The Mist being your first like novella, were you a voracious fan after that? Or did it take a couple books for you to really, really fall in love? No, I think it took more time than that. I think it, was, it sort of happened over a period of time because I didn't start sort of devouring his stuff. I was certainly interested to to watch things, though. I really wanted to see some of the films and the tv shows that had been adapted from his work because i think because i'd been so struck by by salem's lot and how it kept kind of cropping up <laughs> in in my life yeah so i can't remember if i mentioned this on the on the salem's lot episode that we did we used to go ice skating every now and again uh, my dad would take me and my sister uh, ice skating to this uh, rink in uh, in the town of Bournemouth, which is about an hour from where we used to live. And um, by the side of this, this ice rink was this huge mural. And it was exactly the, the, the image of Mr. Barlow standing over the, uh, the Marston house that's often <gasps> used on the, the cover of the, uh, the DVD. Oh, my gosh. Somebody, somebody just painted that. A huge mural. It must have been about, oh, I don't know, it was at least 20, 25 feet high. This thing was huge. It covered a wall. And that was the mural by the side of a family ice rink. Oh, my gosh. And it just, this, this image and it, uh, subsequent images just kept coming coming up. But I would be, I would be more voracious watching something I know that Stephen King had sort of had a hand in or had been inspired by his writing. So much so, I think, that at one point in my naivety, I, I felt that he was writing specifically for screen. Oh, Yeah. Totally. Now I, I don't expect that's true at all. I just think that he was he was writing because he's passionate about it and he loves it. And people were like, "Great, he's written something new. How can we how can we get this on to the screen?" It hasn't always worked, I would argue, but people have <laughs> yeah. been excited enough to want to adapt it one way or another. So I didn't really start reading more 
more Stephen King until I was in my until I was in my early twenties, I'd say. Mostly, mostly based off um, recommendations of of friends or wanting to tackle something like it myself. Nice. Oh, right. I want to read this story. I want to know what's going on with this this fiendish uh, this fiendish clown that's that's eating children because that sounds like an awful lot of fun. But <laughs> I, want, I want to read it for myself. Lovely. I love it. With that, uh, spending time with King, were you a horror person before? Like, did Salem's Lot make you into a horror lover of film and television? Or were you already sort of leaning that way when the King door opened for you? Hmm. <laughs> now, there's a thought. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think seeing something like that probably helped. Yeah. Push me in that direction. I think I was quite a dark child anyway. <laughs> yeah. I was, I mean, I was quite isolated in a way not because of where we because of where we lived and because of the, the, the family that we were and so I could sort of pick up a lot of dark stories and just kind of sort of dwell on them but not just dark stories I mean I'm you know I was a huge huge Star Wars fan yeah so you know I I I, I, I watched there were two films that we had on VHS cassette um <laughs> I just watched and watched and watched and watched. Um, one of which was was Star Wars, and the other one was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Love it. So it wasn't all about darkness, but I did like the old Hammer movies that used to come on telly. The old British um, Hammer studios made all a lot of the um, uh, made a lot of Dracula and Frankenstein films. You got those because you got that that branch of it but you've also got the Bella Lugosi um, and uh, Lon Chaney uh, Warner Brothers stories as well but Hammer was was kind of the British version of this and they, they were on telly a lot I watched them so yeah I was kind of being nudged in that direction because I found it very appealing but what the scene in Salem's Lot which I will I will one of those scenes I'll never forget, which is one that's wonderfully scarred so many people, is Danny <laughs> Danny Glick oh, appearing yeah. in the middle. Of, yeah, you know exactly the scene I'm talking about, don't you? Don't you? Yes, that part in the book is awful. Ugh. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But when he when you when you see him at the window, happening because it's it, the music is so well done and the way it was filmed was very clever and it's so sort of soft and just little electric taps on the window it's so intensely creepy so something like that sticks with you absolutely um you said something earlier about your your dad and the chickens and the foxes did did you ever see a fox attack or other horrors from the farm um because that would scar me up pretty good <laughs> well we lived on a pig farm oh, okay Okay, and pigs will eat anything. Anything, yeah. And I do mean anything. My, I mean, my dad would tell sort of apocryphal tales of people who had had heart attacks in pig pens. And he says, if the pigs are hungry enough, <laughs> yes, they will. Oh, gosh. Because they'll eat anything. But the most common, one of the most common causes of death for animals like pigs on a farm is eating stones. Mm, okay. And so a number of them die 
just because they, they, they don't have a very intelligent diet. Um, <laughs> they don't have a diet intelligently, I should say. And so when this happens, you don't know what they, that they died from. So you have to call a vet up to the farm and you have to have an autopsy. You have to do it there on the farm. Oh, my gosh. And you have to cut the pig open and, you know, do a full proper pig autopsy and find out what this di- this pig died of. And, and very often the vet would, would cut the pig open and half a ton of stones would spill out and go, yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> So we would see the remains of these autopsies because, you know, back in 19, <clears throat> when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, we weren't as concerned with health and safety as we are now. Sure, sure. And they were just, the, the remains would kind of be left around the farm for sort of a, a few hours and you'd go and have a look and sort of, sort of be mostly grossed out by this pig that had been cut open. And then we had a pit that all the pigs were thrown into, this pit that was about, I don't know, 40 odd feet deep maybe that they were all thrown into and it was it was covered up but there were these sort of things around a farm of that time that are quite are quite gruesome fox attacks no you tend not to see them you just tend to sort of see the aftermath of them and you and it's not something you i would advise you seeing because foxes when they get into chicken coops uh, oh golly yeah they just go crazy they don't they don't kill what they need to eat they just go crazy oh geez they just kill for the I don't know why they do it because I don't know why they do it. I don't understand animal psychology, but they don't kill. They, foxes are strange in this respect. They don't always kill for what they need to eat. They kill it for the for the excitement of the frenzy. I don't know. So yeah, it was an um, interesting environment to have a child a child in. Absolutely. <laughs> I love learning about that, Simon, because that is yeah, that's wild. I, I didn't get to grow up on a farm. So I I love I'm a huge animal person and so I'm like, what was that like? And then I hear these very real, very like visceral tales of like, here's what farm life is like. It's not a Disney movie. Here are here are the things. So here, here, here are some bits some some it's not yeah, but it's not like Animal Farm, quite literally. <laughs> totally. But the irony is that a lot of people I think in farming, and I can, I can attest to this because I know dad is the same, is, is an animal lover. You wouldn't think it's, it's necessarily true, but he was always he was always very passionate about making sure the animals were, were cared for and looked after and treated well while they were, you know, while he was managing them. This is just an odd segue, but we're going to jump back to farm stuff because I love this. It's very rich and has me curious, but I have a question on here about favorite Stephen King villains, but before we go there... Do you have a favorite Stephen King character or characters who you just are you just are filled with such delight from these characters? I'm going to answer that question by by way of a boiler because um, there is a spoiler uh, ahead here. So if you're you know if you're wary of those, I don't know, maybe skip forward a few minutes. Um, I was a huge fan of Bill Hodges. Oh, love it. I love Bill Hodges. I'm so glad that he had a uh, a trilogy. Yes. But by the same token, I was I was kind of a bit miffed when he died. Yeah. Because um, I, I wanted, always leave him wanting more. And that's exactly what happened with him. I, I loved that guy. I really rooted for him. I identified with him in a number of ways. But I get, I get why he has to die. Yeah. He has to. He does. That said... He doesn't die in the in the miniseries. Correct. It's one of those one of those times where you think, 
perhaps somebody was able to take the material, the source material, and reflect on it a little bit and go, actually, we can do this differently, or we can not necessarily do this better, but we can do this differently, and we can make this work for us. And if you don't think that's true, then I suggest you watch the ending of The Mist, because it sure as hell is true. A hundred percent. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, what do you think about <laughs> Brendan Gleeson's performance as Bill Hodges? He's he's a wonderful actor. Brendan Gleeson is a wonderful actor. I've never ever seen him turn in a lazy performance. Not once. That's is one of that. He's he's sort of he's inspirational in 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 that respect because if you love what you do, you will almost always be inspired to do it well and he clearly loves what he does and he can play characters like Bill Hodges and he can play a character like the guard in the in the movie the guard where he's playing um he's playing an Irish a sort of a rural Irish police officer in that if you if you've not seen the guard check it out it's a great film it's him um Don Cheadle are the the main actors in it and he, again, he's playing a law enforcement officer who could not be more different from Bill Hodges. But if you want more evidence for his skill, then um, watch Lost in Bruges. Oh, no, not Lost in Bruges. In Bruges. They're not lost. They're just in Bruges. <laughs> Walk in Bruges. And he's fabulous in that as well. And he's, he's been working for years. And one of the things I think that, that sort of um, fuels that that perseverance is the fact that you love it but he was he was absolutely terrific as bill hodges he had this sort of uh, this gruff sort of god oh, i hate the world and it's yes. and leave me in peace but i really love it at the same time but bloody hell this world is horrible and can't somebody do something about this and he he has one line in um in mr mercedes which will will stay with me forever it's not but you know it's not particularly profound or anything it's just the way he delivered it that sort of summed up the sort of i don't give a monkeys about the character <laughs> he's talking to he's talking to the da and i think he's talking to one of the police officer about trying to persuade them what's going on um i think it must be season two actually because they don't think that there's anything wrong with with, with brady and then he's at the table and says brady hartsfield is a pestilence <laughs> <laughs> Not only is that a great way of write, a great uh, piece of writing, but it's just the way he's so he's so passionate about this, and the way he, he, he and look at the opening titles of season two of Mister Mercedes when it's uh, it's him and Harry Treadaway who's just lying in a hospital bed, and you're seeing this passage of time of Bill Hodges visiting this character in hospital, and he's the whole montage is so I say it's subtle, it's. It's not subtle as much as it is truthful about the character. And then you just get on with the job. An acting teacher of mine once um, suggested that acting is not a matter of what you show. It's a matter of what you know. Oh, I like that. So you just you do all of your homework and you know as much as you can, as much as is relevant to know about all your feelings or your points of view, how you feel about everything. And then just leave it alone and get on with the job and get on with the with the scene and you have to trust that the pieces will will, will fall into place and, and and this is this is a philosophical acting point but that requires a certain amount of faith and that's like a holy grail for actors to, to be able to just do all your work leave it alone know that what you've done will be enough and then do it and if there is one amongst a number of actors who I think is worth watching for being able to do that, it's Brendan Gleeson. 
But the whole cast, the whole cast was wonderful in that in that series. I thought Harry Treadaway was brilliantly cast as Brady. He's got this fantastic deadness behind the eyes. And yeah, um, Holly Gibney, Jerome, everybody. That, that was really spot on casting. But um, yeah, Brendan Gleeson leads the charge on that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I love that series. Um, here's my follow-up question to that. So Brendan Gleeson's an Irish actor and they let him keep his accent because Bill Hodges, from my understanding, is American. Do you feel we would have lost something if Brendan had to do um, an American accent? Well, I've not heard Brendan Gleeson's American accent. So it could be, well, the funny thing is you never really know what's behind these decisions. When it comes to film and TV, nine times out of 10, the answer is money. Nine times out of 10, the, the, it always, almost always comes down to, to budget or money or something. Not always, but very often. So that could have played a factor in some respect. It could be that, I don't know, it's pure speculation, but if it, uh, at the end of the day, it absolutely did not bother me that he wasn't an American in that. It didn't bother me at all. Yeah. I just wanted to see the story. It didn't even, actually, it didn't even occur to me that it was, it, it was an issue at all. Not once, because he just, he seemed so characteristically perfect as Bill Hodges. I thought, yes, yes, that's it. That's Bill Hodges. That's pretty much what I thought he'd look like. Thank you. Okay, great. What's uh, what's Brady going to look like? Oh my God. Yes, that's about right too. That is one creepy looking dude. To my shame, I cannot call to mind the name of the actor who plays her older sister, who's also in Angels in America. Yes, I'm drawing a huge blank too. See, this is where I kind of wish Matt was here because he'd know that name like that. Yes, Mary Louise Parker. Mary Louise Parker. She's wonderful in that. Everybody's wonderful in it. There are no, there are no actors who aren't who aren't giving it that they're all in that. No, so no, it didn't bother me at all that he was he was Irish in it. Didn't bother me. Um, it was like fine. He's just an immigrant. So what? <laughs> I actually think it made it better. I think it enhanced Bill Hodges for me, for sure. Because I, I love a, a nice grizzled <laughs> Irish cop. They're, they're fantastic. Um, so going from favorite character of Bill Hodges, do you have a favorite Stephen King villain? I, yeah, Brady. Even even before the miniseries. Even before, just just taking the the books, the stories, the as they as they are before I even knew that they were making the um the miniseries Brady Hartsfield is one messed up individual and worse than him being so sadistic is is the one thing that you don't want that kind of cruel personality personality tempered with and that's the smarts oh yeah because he's very clever and he and he's clever enough to know that one of the virtues that he needs to have in order to get what he wants is patience and most crooks if they're sort of not small fry necessarily but if they're easily caught it's because they haven't been patient oh that's good and brady is more than happy to play the long game in order to get the maximum suffering oh i mean throughout throughout the second the, the second book He's comatose. <laughs> yeah. 
he's you know he's doing it from a coma for heaven's sake there's 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 something about brady hartsfield that's a um there's a force of nature that said who is going to forget pennywise who's going to forget our friend mr bob brown that's inspired that that sort of creation is inspired in its simplicity there's a you know stephen king has said himself a number of times at various talks and interviews i wanted this creature to to embody all of the things that could possibly make people scared i wanted it to to be in one thing that 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 scares everybody particularly children what always scares children clowns <laughs> that's it pennywise is a clown and it's so it is incredibly simple but genius simplifies genius simplifies so the more simple something is, uh, or the more simple something seems, I think the more sophisticated it probably is. Oh, I like that a lot. I mean, uh, look at M- E equals MC squared. E equals M. That's five characters, and that's the theory of relativity. <laughs> so unpack that. But with but, but Einstein brought it down to five characters. And that's not easy, but it is genius simplifies. And to make something simple is difficult it's not easy and pennywise again is terrifying but my introduction to pennywise was stephen stephen curry um tim curry why thank you <laughs> my introduction to pennywise i'm getting my my thing yeah my my, my terror is mixed up here my introduction to pennywise was tim curry legend yeah and you you've seen that right? oh yeah several times several times and I both love it and hate it because it's it's one where my inner terrified child I can feel it inside my adult form but the the child inside me that's still there freaks out every time um I watch the 1990 miniseries Hello Kim Oh my god <laughs> Would you like a balloon Oh god I could have peed myself. <laughs> that was wonderful, but also um, I could have just let my bladder go just then. So uh, that was tremendous in its accuracy. And you can come down here and float with us. Wow! Wow! Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'll leave that. I'll leave that there. That could go. <laughs> that was amazing. Slash horrifying but um thank you pleasure. Uh, yes oh that's so good Whew, i got the vapors as they say fanning myself uh the heart got pounding on that one that was that was tremendous do you do impressions a lot simon uh okay i'm a bit like richie you know if there's any one of the <laughs> yeah. Losers, yeah if there's one of any one of the losers i probably have the most in common with it's richie tozier yay uh He's probably the kid I was most similar to because I definitely wasn't a leader. So there's no way um, I was a big bill. I wasn't that, you know, I wasn't that big. So um, physically, so I wasn't I wasn't like Ben. I wasn't smart enough to be Stan. Um, Maybe a little bit of Eddie. But yeah, (laughs) I was always I was kind of like uh, the the class clown. I was often doing sort of characters and voices and yeah. and things like that. So yeah, occasionally I've been known to do the odd impression, but it's, it's like it's a bit like having been so impressed by 
Brendan Gleeson as, as Bill Hodges. If I could bottle that voice yeah. and just sort of, you know, be able to sort of <clears throat> drink from the bottle whenever I wanted to do an audition or do a job or something, if I can just sound like Brendan Gleeson, that's what I do. Or Christopher Walken. Or Christopher Walken. Because one of my other very early introductions to Stephen King was watching repeatedly The Dead Zone. Nice. Which I think is a it's a wonderful film. I really do. Um, I probably shouldn't love it as much as I do. That was a good one. It's a great movie and he's terrific in it. He's really, really good. I love Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen as mm. Stilson is just so good. So good. Mm. Mm. But uh, again, it's, a, it's, it's testament to how good an actor is when they apply themselves to different psycho to characters with very different makeups. So, yeah, you've got Greg Stilson and he's wonderfully chilling as Greg Stilson. But he was also President Jed Bartlett. Yeah, he was. And didn't we all root for Jed Bartlett? Because I know I did. Totally different bloke. Both. Um, both depictions of the President of the United States, but very, very different people. So I am super inspired by your film expertise. So it's kind of inspiring me to improvise these questions just a tiny, tiny bit, if that's all right. But is there, because you kind of mentioned Brendan Gleeson's performance in the Mr. Mercedes miniseries, which is so good. They had three seasons. Is there a film like a recent within the last 10 years King adaptation with the new It movies with Dr. Sleep. Do you have like a favorite recent film or performance that you feel is like so good from a King adaptation? I would say one of the performances that is definitely worth a second look, Ben Mendelsohn in The Outsider. Oh, wonderful. So it's not a film. But if there is one thing I am constantly huh, saying to Matt on King Size is that I wish that more adaptations were done as miniseries and not films. Yes, 100%. Because I've, I've enjoyed the films, absolutely. Um, the Mist works particularly well because it's not a novel, it's a novella, so it's a much shorter story. Um, it's easier to get more of the material included. With a miniseries, the whole story can breathe so much deeper. I mean, thinking about the two It movies most recently, I, I still think, as good as it was, I would have preferred a miniseries made by the same production company. But Ben Mendelsohn as, uh, as Ralph in The Outsider is a terrific performance. It's, again, it's, it's, it's so deep and it's, and it's rich and it's not shown He's not demonstrating anything. Acting is not a matter of what you show. It's a matter of what you know. And he knows everything that he needs to know in each of the scenes that he's playing about, about everything. You just know it. Leave it alone. Get on with the scene. And have enough, have enough faith that what, that what you are doing will be read by the audience. Because if it's there, they will sense it. They'll just know. They won't need to be told. They'll just know. They won't know how they know, but they'll know. And they'll therefore be carried along in the journey um, in the same way the character is. But everything he plays in that from the from the indignation that he has to have at the beginning of the story and arresting this guy in public because he, he, he knows what he knows. And then all of the 
uncertainty and ambivalence and questioning of this that comes comes after it, I think is so so wonderfully well played by virtue of the fact that he's not showing you anything. He's just doing it. And Ben Mendelssohn, I think, is an, is an absolutely first rate actor. Oh, hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Unlike every film he's be he's been in, but you can't say that any of the performances ha- aren't don't have depth. Yeah. To whatever extent they 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 need to have, but I found the outsider again a, a wonderful telling of that story. It was chilling. It was it was completely absorbing. Yes. And you 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 cared, you cared, and um, um Paddy Considine, another yeah. terrific actor. Paddy Considine's one of one of the best actors that England has has produced in recent years, right up there with Stephen Graham. But anyway. If you look at what happens to um, Paddy Considine's character, where he starts and then when, where he, he ends up. Amazing. And you can cut this next bit out if you like, because this is an acting point. But one of the things you can, when you, one of the things you consider as an actor is uh, what we call the range of change. So where does the character start and where do they end up and what happens to them on that, on that journey? And as, as I said to Matt, when we did The Shining on King Size, this is one of the reasons that Jack Nicholson's performance as Jack Torrance in Stanley Kubrick's movie doesn't work for me. It's because he has no range of change. He's got nowhere to go. He's kind of crazy right at the beginning. Yeah. And then 20 minutes into the film, I seem to remember looking at the clock and going, this will be like 20 minutes into the film. He's sort of leering out of the window at his wife and son. And you can tell, you can, yeah, you're... You're one way short of a shipwreck already, ain't you? <laughs> and like, so that's not the character that I that having reread The Shining, I, I really wanted to see. I wanted to see a good man attacked and undermined and fighting the demonic forces that um, that were at play. And you, I, I didn't see that in the film. I saw somebody sort of already half crazy going, "Hey, Grace." It's party time. <laughs> not what I want. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I think you're missing the point. But you know, Stanley Kubrick told the story that he he wanted to tell. That he did. That he did to everlasting infamy. I love that you brought up that um, the Outsider. I think this is such a great miniseries to talk about. Uh, love it so much. And this is just a totally unrelated point. But we're talking about acting because I'm inspired. I am so impressed by Patty's performance because his southern accent, like mm. I forgot he was British. I forgot. And that is like, we have so much new. I mean, all accents are full of nuance and stuff like that. But like, I was I am so tremendously impressed by actors from the UK to get our weirdness and do these American accents to where I don't know where you're from. And I assume that you are from that zone. If you ever watched True Blood a couple of years back yeah. on HBO, there's the Aussie actor, I'm forgetting his name, but it's Sookie's brother. He's an Australian actor and he was, his American accent, of course I'm forgetting his name, that always happens when I chat. Who's brother? Um, Sookie Stackhouse, um, Anna Paquin's brother on the show, and he's from Australia, and he has the most amazing southern accent. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I, when I found out he was from Australia, I 
was blown away. Okay. And uh, the, the, the rest of this story, to not go off on too much of a tangent, I got to meet him in real life. Wow. And I got to tell him this. I was like, you have the best Southern accent I've ever heard. Like, that's what really transports me in a performance. Like, whenever it's just like, I don't know where you're from. Because I think it's got to be a tremendous challenge. Because sometimes you can hear when a when a UK actor is like really try you sound very 1940s American <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and so but that has to be an extremely tall order so I'm not you know but I'm so impressed I'm so impressed in acting when like the accent is seamless and that has to be tremendously hard Simon I'm assuming well it depends some things some actors find really easy others find incredibly hard right some actors have a real affinity for accents and they can do it infuriatingly easily <laughs> but they might very well struggle with something else that another actor will just be able to do as easily as they do accents it depends on the accent right um it depends on what your native accent is it depends also on how long you've had to learn it because I, i've been more forgiving with actors and accents since I sort of was encouraged to consider that they may not have had that long to do it or as long as, as they would have liked. Again, it's a budgetary thing. Perhaps they were replacing an actor that dropped out. Perhaps they could only join the production at a certain point because they were doing something beforehand. So they only had, I don't know, six weeks to learn an accent and they really would have liked three months. Right. But do you remember The Wire? Did you ever see The Wire? I did, yeah. Okay, but that was the first thing I ever saw Dominic West do. I'd never seen him in anything else. He was a completely new actor to me. So then when I heard him in interview on um, on some of the DVD extras, and he's there in his somewhat plummy English accent going, oh, yes, that person's a cop and that person's father's a cop. And I'm like, my God, you're a Brit? What <laughs> in hell? Good God. If I want to work in television, I've got to be that good. Oh, God, I've got a long way to go because that, <laughs> I thought that was a, because he just blends in with everybody else. And it's a lead character he's playing. And there's no way in hell that a production company like HBO is taking a risk on a British actor playing an American character in such an inherently American story with an, a very American cast, unless the accent's up, up to scratch. They're just not doing it. So, but it can be disorientating, can't it, when you hear an actor speak in their their native voice and you go what yeah <laughs> absolutely i love this so much i'm so inspired but we're going to jump back to the books just a little bit and see what magic cooks up so in your reading of king simon do you have any titles that you just dislike but you found that you're alone in that and everybody loves it and vice versa is there something that you super duper love but nobody likes that book or that story at all and they're like come on simon well there are certainly ones that i feel are a bit um overlooked or, or underrated Hooray! <laughs> so this might be useful material um but there are a couple that that, that i don't get uh, at least one that i don't get that other people seem to be absolutely blown away by now I would like to add that both of these I have only read one. So this, and not recently either. So this is a memory of, of the reading, but the memory kind of stuck. 
One of them, I think, is a bit controversial. The other one, probably less so. So the one I think would probably make people go, really? <laughs> is from a Buick 8. Okay. Okay. Yes. You see, I just, I'm, I just, I was just really confused <laughs> and very disorientated. And I didn't really know what was going on. So it probably just needs a reread. But I know that, that there's a lot of love, particularly from the uh, other side of this conversation, for this title. But for me, I, 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 I know I need to reread it. But the first time around, I was just <laughs> lost. And it was a bit too, it was a bit, it seemed, it seemed a bit too surreal. So ask me <laughs> again when I've reread it. Will do. I mean, there's no... There's no visual adaptation of, of this one, is there? Nobody's done from a Buick 8, and I wonder why that is. I don't know. I, I just know that there's a lot of love from, from, from a Buick 8, including Matt. I think, I think Matt loved it. He told me it was a, quote, cracker of a, of, <laughs> of a King title. So You're probably right, but I just... I need to read it again because, say, the first time around. Okay. So the second one is, is again, one I felt a bit lost in and, and, and rather disorientated, and that's the Tommyknockers. Yeah. But that might not be quite so uncommon an opinion because I think it was after the Tommyknockers that Stephen King's family basically did the, the intervention and went, Steve? Now, Steve, uh, we've got to have a talk. Um, like I say, I've only read the Tommy Knockers once, but I, I just felt it was a bit out there. Yes, to say the least. For my taste. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know it's got some wonderful characters in it. I know, I know, you know, I know you're re rooting for Peter. <laughs> the dog, yes, the dog. I love him so much. And that's, yeah, there are some, some some great characters in it, but as a as a as a as a whole piece, I think I think Stephen has uh, Stephen King has written about that about that kind of story better yes um at least for me in a in a more engaging a more a more thrilling way um the the, the, the tommy knockers i was just maybe maybe i'm just not that bright maybe that's all this, the problem is here but uh, yeah the tommy knockers I had, uh, um, uh, well, but the what now <laughs> Simon, you are completely in the right faculties and full of intelligence for disliking and not jiving with the Tommyknockers. It is a very messy book um, that is just needs a lot of help. Uh, so you are dead on the money. You're 100% correct on that. Thank you. I'm glad to know it's not just me. <laughs> no, no, Simon, you are not alone in that at all whatsoever. So jumping back to characters a little bit, mm -hmm. do you have a King character? And it could be one that we've already discussed and loved thoroughly. Is there someone that you would like to have a Stephen King prequel or a sequel, for example, Holly Gibney, as you know, mm -hmm. is getting, she's our bright star now. She's going to get her own novel and she's been popping up all over the place. So do you have a character that you're like, we just need more, either a prequel, sequel, a standout novel just about them? Who would you say? Oh, well, I'm glad we're getting more Holly Gibney. I'm not, I'm not at all surprised. Um, I think, I think that must have been a wonderful feeling for Stephen King for that 
for Holly to have been writing Holly Gibney and for him to be thinking of her as just a, you know, a walk on, a quick on information and move the story forward and away you go. But, you know, we're left with a character that we could probably recognise and identify with. And now she's this, you know, this leading lady for him. That must be wonderful for him to have discovered this, this wealth of, um, of, uh, of story and this, and this material in her. But um, there's, yeah, I would like one sequel and I would like one prequel. And if I'm going to have a, a sequel, then I want to know what happened to Charlie McGee. Oh, yes. Oh, Simon, yes. That's awesome. Yeah, we just left her, right? Correct. You know, walking into the, the offices of Rolling Stone. Yep. And going to give them, them her story. But if Danny Torrance is allowed a story to see what happens to you know to him i want to know what happened to charlie yes because arguably her power was even more even more dangerous potentially so what became of it what became of her did she and how did she live in the same way that 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 danny had to kind of alone yeah because danny loses his parents um charlie loses her parents and they both come from loving households, m- more or less. But I really wanted to know what what happened to her and her world. I'd be fascinated to go to to revisit um, our little fire starter and see what she's doing these days. Oh, I love that! I love that so much. Couldn't agree more. Because yeah, the the book ends and she's nine years old. That's yeah. she's nine. Yeah, she's right at the beginning. So. My hypothesis, like my creative runaway with it, I think the Russians got her. I think, uh-huh. yeah, because it's like in the mid 80s. I think Russia found her and it was some Cold War 80s awesomeness and she got out. And now she's like La Femme Nikita. Just uh-huh. <laughs> that's my, uh, that's the show I'm writing in my brain, Simon. Okay. <laughs> okay, looking forward to that. Yeah, that's the mini series I'm going to release one day. It's... And uh, um, when when did the audition start? I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not looking for the lead here, but, you know, supporting cast, more than happy. Asking for a friend, um, right? Yeah. I will let you know immediately. Uh, you'll you'll have uh, a starring role. As, um, it remi- It's a fascinating concept. It reminds me of a... Um, a DC story called Red Sun. Have you ever heard of this one? It's slightly obscure. It's a Superman story. It's called Red Sun. Yes, I have. I haven't seen it. I'm a huge DC person, but right. so yeah, it's just it, it's a sort of a speculation as to what would have happened to Carlisle if he'd have landed in rural Russia as opposed to rural American and been raised as a Russian as opposed to an American. Oh my gosh, I love that. It's you say it's a one-off. It's pure. It's pure con, uh, sort of conjecture in that. But it says what would have happened if he'd have been raised as a rural Russian, as a communist, as opposed to growing up in nineteen fifties, sixties America. Oh my gosh! What would have what impact would he then have, have have had on the world? So yeah, if Charlie had been snatched by the Russians and and raised with that, I mean, good luck containing her though. Right. <laughs> good luck. Yeah, may the force be with you, mate, because <laughs> let's forget it. Not locking you up, forget it. You you can try every bit of water in every lake 
ocean and sea on the planet in it, it's not going to douse her. That's the problem. Because if she wants to do something, she's going to do it. She has an awesome, awesome power. Yes. And it's not, it, it, it's, about, it's about tempering that. So for her, but I want to know, I, Stephen King, I want to know what <laughs> happened Charlie McGee. Okay. So if we're talking sequels, you covered, you covered Danny, Danny Torrance very nicely. Thank you, sir. And now Charlie McGee, please. So that's my. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't. Agree. I'm with you. I'm right. Signing the petition. My signature is right next to yours. Thank you. Lovely. I'm sure. I'm sure he'll take notice of it. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so, with Stephen King books, have you reread any Stephen King titles? Are there, are there any that you're like, you read and you really like, and then you come back to it a couple years later, and you're like, I got to read this one again. Well, we say we've been I've been rereading a few recently, starting. Uh, having started the, the podcast and we've been able obviously to choose what we wanted to to reread and one one of the books I really wanted to reread early and I'm glad I'm really glad we did was Cujo nice my first reading my first reading of Cujo I came away from it feeling it was a very a very poignant story um overall I mean there, there are bits of that are very very frightening and incredibly engaging and, inc- and, and 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 enormously tense and and the tension the tension is really well drawn out and drawn out and drawn out in this incredibly oppressive environment i mean imagine just not just being in that hot in that hot landscape but having to be in a car oh, yeah. exposed in that hot landscape and this ain't a car that's got working air conditioning neither. Right. So, so it was it was incredibly thrilling, and it was very very poignant. And I wanted to to, to go back to it again because there were so many wonderful moments and metaphors in it. And I knew there was something about it that I wanted to to revisit. And the second time I read that book, it absolutely broke my heart. Oh yeah. It broke my heart, and it kind of. In a way, it really forced me or encouraged me to kind of re-examine aspects of my own life. Wow. Because of the, of, of the metaphor, I think, Kujo is for addiction. Yeah. And it, 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 cause I felt so, so heartbroken by what happens yeah. to virtually all of the characters, but the dog in particular, most particularly the dog and I think that's something that's very specific to the writing because it is practically impossible to capture on film and within the the context of of the writing you get much more of an insight into Cujo himself and to what he's going through and what his story is and how he's being put through the through the ringer and you don't it's practically impossible to capture that on film so the writing is kind of where it's at for me for that for that book and it absolutely knocked me on my ass and as I say the second time around I just thought it was so it was so sad it wasn't just poignant it was so beautifully sad it still had it still had a beauty to it and it went it kind of went the way you knew I knew it was going to go because I'd read it before but even so even so there's something about reading a novel like that and or watching a film where you know something's going to happen, but you still hope that it's not. Right. Have you ever seen? Um, have you ever seen a 
fantastic movie called Midnight Express. Mm, it's not ringing a bell. Okay, okay. I can't use it as an, an analogy, unfortunately, because it's a spoiler. It's a fantastic film from the late 70s, early 80s, about a young lad called Billy Hayes and his time in Turkey. And that's all I'm going to say. I can't say anything more about it, but there's something that happens in that film. And every time I watch it, I think, no, this time it'll go this way. <laughs> it's a it's a bloody film, Simon. There's only one way it can go. It's like the same thing with a novel. There's only one way this has been written. It's not going to be different this time, but you still hope that it will be. There's still this tiny little naive little part of you that thinks, oh, come on, this time. Can't it just this time, please? Right. Can't that damn bat just miss? <laughs> oh, gosh. You knew he was too old to chase rabbits. Oh, so... I've never heard Cujo described that way, so I'm extremely moved because I've I I haven't read it yet. So, but I know what happens because it's an old one. It's an old one, and it's in pop culture to such an, to such mm. a degree um, that I know plot wise what happens. But mm. I have not read it yet, and so I'm extremely excited now based on what you've experienced. Like that sounds so meaningful, and it seems so much more richer and deeper than the pulpy sort of pop culture references it's given it's just given like these little like oh it's about a rabie dog it's about like a really angry dog and and it seems like oh no 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 no! it's actually incredibly deep mm. i mean on the surface yes that's that that is what it's about but there's an awful lot more more meaning i love that that's so nice I don't know if what I'm about to say next is going to make it to air, even if, if I should say it, but what the hell. Um, when we came to recording QJO on that afternoon that Matt and I connected via Zoom and, and, and recorded, I set myself up and I was, I, I, was, I, was, I was ready to go and I got my notes and everything. And uh, Matt came, came on screen and I was sort of, I was, I was waiting for him and I, I, I sort of I sort of looked at him and I knew what we were going to talk about and I knew how I felt about what we were, what we were going to talk about and I burst into tears oh and I, I I remember saying to him I said I don't know I don't think I can do this one I don't we might we might have to come back to this this one's going to be really messy and in, in the end it was fine but at the beginning I was like I don't know if I can talk about this and not be a blubbering wreck <laughs> yeah it really was, and I love it when a I love it when a novel in particular can do that when it can move you to such an extent that even a, a little while afterwards you're going to come back and talk about it and you, you you just start crying. Yeah, I mean that takes that takes skill. I think I don't know maybe it's because I, I I work in the performing arts, but I think it's harder to do in writing than it is in in performance. A hundred percent. Yeah. With when you're watching a performance, you've, humans have those mirror neurons. So when we're watching someone cry or watching someone lose a loved one, our brain doesn't really know that that's not us. So, so it's like the emotional reception is very powerful. That's like Greek theater, the catharsis aspect mm -hmm. of it. Like we needed to cry and imagine ourselves in that terrible scenario. But I think you're absolutely right. Is with writing. He's just he's just showing, right? He's just showing what's going on in this scene. And we're the ones who have put ourselves in it to live it mm. and sit right next to these characters. And that's how I feel sometimes when I read King, especially with the really violent stuff or with the 
I feel like I'm sitting there watching it all and I'm powerless and I cry because I'm powerless, but I'm also mm. a part of it. And so that's extremely meaningful. Mm. Yeah, you're sort of in it and watching it at the same time. Correct. It's very odd. I, I don't know what it is, but it's uh, again, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a similar sort of way to how acting was described to me once. Acting is not a trick. It's a knack. But it takes a series of tricks to make the knack. Wow. So if so, uh, if you think of some, think of a professional athlete. OK, so think of a professional soccer player. They might spend hours just kicking a ball against the wall. Just something as simple as that. Just kicking a ball against the wall. Because one of the most crucial things in that game is your first touch. You have to be able to control the ball instantly. And then, and then move on. Now, that doesn't just come. That's a knack. That has to be on autopilot. But in order to make that knack, you have to do the trick repeatedly. You have to kick the ball against the wall. Now, I don't know how that translates as a writer. Perhaps it is something that you are just sort of blessed with. Or is it something that can be taught? Right. But a knack is something that's just on autopilot and you don't question it and you just do it. And you just know that it, it, it's right and that it works. But it seems to me that even, even from his earliest novels, Stephen King has had a knack of, as I think he said himself, just sort of tapping somebody on, 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 on the shoulder gently and saying, hey, do you want to come over here and see something cool? And you're like, you're yeah, all right. <laughs> and you just go with the guy. Yep. You're like, yeah. OK, what, what you got? <laughs> oh, my God, vampires infesting a, an american town hey cool you're right it was cool and you know you just you just go along for the for the ride absolutely are you a dark tower fan simon um when um i, I was thinking about the dark tower the first thing that occurred to me was that uh i really must read that one day <laughs> no worries yeah that's that's on my to-do list the only, only exposure I've had to The Dark Tower has been to read a couple of the graphic novels that were based on it. And that's not the same thing. That's kind of cheating. And I, uh, I did, <coughs> fortunately, have to... Um, I did watch the film. Yeah. That was a few years ago. I found that, despite some of its cast, very disappointing. Correct. It was yeah. That was that was not for me. But for the actual actual novel, that is one very large part of um, Stephen King's work that I have neglected. I'm afraid to say. I'm really sorry, but uh, just never quite got round to starting any of the Dark Tower. No worries. I just read them for the like. I'm only on book four. I just started last year. And I've been reading King for almost 10-ish years, like almost 10 years. So it's totally fine. And I just haven't, I did not make it a priority until I was chatting with a lot of King. It's a huge thing, Simon. It's a huge mm, mm. thing, as you know. scared me about it. Is, as you know, yes. It's, it's a thing in all caps. So um, now that I have started the journey, though, I kind of find myself wanting, it's very cool. And I want to talk about it all the time with everybody. So I'm really excited when you start that journey. We'll have to have a chat because it's very different. Very different. Yeah. But it does it does crop up in in it does spill over into the, the other universes, doesn't it? From what from what I can understand. Because having read 
I think it was Black House. One, I think Black House is the Stephen, one of Stephen King's novels he co-wrote with Peter Straub. You are correct. Hey, thank you. Um, <laughs> it was sort of dirty because I remember reading Black House on on, hol on holiday. But some elements of the the Dark Tower crop up in that, if memory serves. You might be right. I haven't read that one. But anyway, so yeah, I've sort of got a bit of a flavour. None of the Dark Tower novels can I claim to have read. I have not avoided them at all. But one of the, I say one of the things that does yeah terrify me a bit is the fact that it's just an epic epic story that he's he's telling here but he's writing it so it will most probably engage me just in some level i would hope and like i say it hasn't happened every single time i've read something he's written but we've covered that we've covered that <laughs> we don't need to go back back over that but if you want to go back over something and this is the <laughs> other thing i'd like to um just throw into the mix there that it's, it's my prequel and i i've got this perverse desire to see the uh the tales of, of uh barlow and straker nice uh, i want to see what 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 happened with them in the centuries before they arrived at salem's lot i want to sort of you know see them traveling around europe and and north africa and the middle east and stuff like that i want to see their i mean it's not going to end nicely for anybody is it but uh, but even so, yeah, there's something about those, the, the history that those two characters have, particularly Barlow. Yeah. So maybe because, you know, he ended up in America. So the, perhaps the reason that he um, ended up in Salem's Lot was he got chased out of every other country he tried to settle in. I love it. Let's lead into our sort of final questions here. Simon, do you have a top three or a top five Stephen King novels what are or titles rather like what is it, your ranking what are your favorites well Cujo we've already talked about right so that one's that one's on the on the shelf already on the top shelf there I would I would definitely put it next to it so to speak because this is my my third reading of it nice. now but that's amateur by some standards. Agree, yeah. Yeah, we, you know, we've heard from from people who've said, you know, I read that book at least once a year. I'm like, what? Wow. Ooh, that's, that's brave. I'm not, well, it is brave because I knew I couldn't commit that kind of, kind of time to it, but other people read, are able to read deeply and quickly, um, and I'm not. But it, I think, is... Yeah, there's an, there's an argument to be made that it is a masterpiece. Yes. Particularly if you take into consideration the context in which it was written, is that he didn't just write it right off the bat. He was writing other novels in between writing that one. Amazing. Seriously, you, you managed to rattle off that, that, and that, and this are the same. Good God, man. I know. You are, you are a machine, not, not, not a machine, but... Beyond voracious and you love this don't you you must absolutely love this to be able to create that kind of richness and character and and, and heart and spirit but it really does knock you for six yes not just in the sort of the, the the terror you just that's that's almost that's almost something that's superficial yeah because it's more about the losers and what happens to them and then that how it reflects what that's what happens to people and that's what happens in your childhood and then potentially what happens to you when you inverted commas grow up but there's a huge amount of love for it um and it's not at all 
hard to see why. If there is one book that is also on there, but I'm a little bit scared to to reread, um, or at least wary of, it's Revival. Okay. Revival is another story that really knocked me off my feet. Yeah, same. Yeah, and I think my my perspective of it was it's um had a lot to do with how to put this getting biologically older <laughs> yeah and starting to think every now and again just occasionally what's next right and if that yeah. next <laughs> oh god i know even king is in serious trouble i've got a few, i've got a few very carefully chosen colourful words for him if, if he's right about that. Because that just made me think, oh my God, what if he's right? Right. Terror. What if he, yeah, exactly. Absolutely stone soberingly terrifying. And you're sort of hurtling towards it. And there's no stopping it. <laughs> oh, you bastard. You <laughs> bastard. I can't, I can't not know that now. Um, same but um i suspect it's more likely it's the um the product of a very very um heartfelt imagination yeah if if that can be said to be the case but what if (laughs) there's always that what if isn't there there's like my god what if he's what if he's right right what if it's true (laughs) what what if it's like oh no one's gonna believe this this um new england novelist (laughs) we'll slip it in like that We'll tell the whole world. <laughs> yeah, it keeps me up at night if I think too much on the ending of Revival. I do I do not sleep well, and I get very, very sad in my brain <laughs> thinking yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying indeed. So we've got It, we have Cujo, we have Revival. Um, anybody else in the party? Well, I wanted to make a couple of petitions for the visual. And so, as I said, w- one of the films going to go go on the shelf is going to be the dead zone lovely because there are so there's so many aspects of that film i absolutely adore i can it's one of those films which which isn't star wars that i can just watch and watch and watch and watch and not get bored of the performances are terrific it's really well adapted given that it's you know it is adapted if that doesn't sound too daft there are lots of things that aren't in the film that are in the book but the story of the film the soundtrack is wonderful. Michael Kamen's soundtrack was just beautiful. It's, yeah, it's engaging. It's sad. It's dramatic. It's exciting. You've got this terrific villain in there. Villains, yes. in point of Correct. fact. It's not just Greg Stilson, but Frank Dodd. Yeah, it's a bit overlooked, I think, because Martin Sheen's so, so bloody good. I mean, Frank Dodd doesn't get as much screen time, but there's a terrifying Stephen King villain. Oh, God, yes, you are correct, sir. Oh, my gosh. And I don't think it's any coincidence, or at the very least, it's worthy of consideration of how many of Stephen King's villains are people of authority. Yeah. Or the establishment. Yeah. I mean, Martin, um, Martin Sheen is such a good actor that I keep forgetting that he's in Firestarter. I keep forgetting oh, yes. he's part of the shop. You're right. You are right. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, he played the captain, didn't he? He's like, yeah, but you just, you have Greg Stilson. I mean, yeah, but he's brilliant in, in, um, in Firestarter as well. But the film, it was, it was one of the first pieces of Stephen King material I was ever 
exposed to and that kind of start started the the ball rolling because it just it just gets you yeah and you know christopher walken is is perfectly cast and he plays it so well and the direction i say i think david cronenberg does a brilliant job on it and it's not what you might consider to be a david cronenberg movie totally you would if you were told that this was a stephen it was based on a stephen king novel starring christopher walken it's directed by david cronenberg and then you watch that you would probably be quite confounded i expect to be expecting something totally different so that's going up there and how it's managed to escape the conversation so far i will never know (laughs) but you know i can't i can't let this this chat pass without saying the shawshank redemption's got to be up there yes that's one of the very very few occasions when i think you might be able to say you know what i think the film did better oh yeah i'm sorry steve i'm really sorry i know you don't want to hear it it's not fair but i think i i think i think frank darabont might have got a a brace over stephen king because arguably the mist yep was i think i said said to matt at the time i read somewhere i think that stephen king said um about the the ending of the mist if that's what i'd have thought of that's what i would have written amazing wow that's the ending i would have gone i would have gone with if i'd have thought of doing it it's brilliant that's that's a really clever ending actually yeah and to hear if he actually concedes that point then but say the 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 mist was very close to my heart very close to my heart because it was the first stephen king story i I ever read and i thought if they they adapt this well oh god frank darabont's directing it and it's great fantastic and it was such a faithful adaptation until but we've covered that. But arguably, the Shawshank Redemption is better than Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. It's a cracking story. It's yeah. a really, really good read. But the film, I mean... It's the, magic. It's, it is. It is absolute magic. Yep. That, that film has changed people's lives, many people's lives. And it's on so many people's top 10 movie lists and yet it did nothing at the box office in that wild go figure right go figure but fortunately like like the thing it found it found its audience eventually and has been much much loved since it was since it was discovered i mean i'd love a i'd love a copy of four four seasons as uh, i'd love a copy of different seasons there you go nice recovery thank you <laughs> <laughs> um different seasons um i think i got a bit confused by the last one because that one's never been adapted i can't imagine why um, <laughs> right oh my god <laughs> yeah right? yeah good luck putting that's never gonna happen probably not probably not somebody it'll be one of those ones where a student does it for a dollar exactly you know, they, they buy the right to a dollar go have a crack at that go on it's, it's my <laughs> dissertation but the shawshank redemption is yeah it's literally a desert desert island movie isn't it because if you're gonna if you're gonna take a film that's gonna want to continually not only move you but encourage you that hope that a escape is possible it's gonna be that one it's gonna be that one yep i heard somebody i think i think one of matt's guests is one of his other guests i should say um on survivor type wanted jaws as their desert island moving jaws how, how are you going to get into the water if you're going to get off this island if all you've got in your head is a killer great white shark out there 
odd choice. <laughs> I, I, I expect, I hope they were doing it for entertainment value, but I tend to think in terms of pure practicality. And I want a movie that's going to encourage me that I won't die alone yeah. of exposure or dehydration on this island. So, so something encourage me, please. Oh, this will do. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I just need to keep tunneling. I just need to keep going. That's all. Just need to keep going. I love it. So good. So my last question on this amazing stellar chat, if Stephen King was doing a book signing and you and I were in line to get our book signed, which one would it be for you? If you could only get one signed, which one are you going to have him sign? It might be my very old battered copy of Skeleton Crew. Amazing. Because it was my first. Yeah. It it might well be my copy of Cujo. Love it. But it might also be one I suspect he would refuse to sign. And it's one that's it's not very well known. Or it might be known about, but not very well read for fairly obvious reasons. And that's rage. Because it doesn't yeah, it doesn't exist in print anymore. Right. Yeah. I don't know how he'd feel about that one. I think you should do Cujo yeah. or but I'm so glad you brought up Skeleton Crew because I think I have this this rolling theory. All the constant reader interviews, I try to ask this question. And for almost nine times out of ten, they always say the first Stephen King book they ever read is the one they'll get signed. And that just moves me so much. Mm. I think it's such a special thing that the one that started it all is the one you want signed. So I love that. Yeah, it would probably, I think in, in, in of those three contenders, it would probably be my old battered copy of Skeleton Crew, which I still have. Um, I mean, my, my first ever copy of it is not in Great Nick, but um, no, that's properly falling apart. But yeah, it would it would be Skeleton Crew. Wonderful. If I've got to have a signature on on something, I say the Backman books. Yeah, he pro- would probably and quite understandably say, oh, "Have you got another one?" Because you know, I didn't really want this one out in the world anymore. Yeah. He might say, piss off, Simon. <laughs> piss off, Simon. Uh, go, go to the back of the line and come back with Q-Jo. Oh, man, that's, that's magic. That's awesome. Oh, he's got so many wonderful, great, re, you know, sort of retorts and, and curses in his writing as well. But ho- hopefully piss off is as hard as it would get. You just brought up something super fun. We're going to do this together. This will be our last question. So as you know, Stephen King being from Maine, there is a colloquialism he uses in his novels quite a bit, and it's Mm -hmm. the expression A-Y-U-H. So when you're reading that, what do you hear in your head? (laughs) Because when I read it, you know... I think it's kind of like the Canadian A. Like, what do you think about that, eh? I think that in Maine, they took A and it's become yeah, but a yeah. And uh-huh. so when I hear it or when I read it, I chop the A and I just say yeah. And I think that's how they're saying it, but I don't know. So I was curious, like, what do you do with the A U or with, the, pardon me, the A Y U H? Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> uh-huh yeah i think it's that kind of thing yeah, yeah. um uh-huh. it's a bit it's a, it's a for, yeah the sort of agreement the sort of so i've got i've got i've, I've got my motorbike here uh-huh yeah it's not working very well uh-huh 
Yeah, it's sort of an aha, but it's probably a bit more nuanced and heavily accented than that, because he only really uses it for real New England characters. Correct. Because, yeah, I don't I don't know if they're drawing out the A, because in New England they have, like, a, a harsh... They have some harsh consonants, like the R is kind of hard. And so I don't know if they're doing like, oh, yeah. I don't know if they're really drawing it out or if it's like, a, yeah, like short and the A is chopped. Because yeah. I know, you know, we know it when we hear it. And other Stephen King movies are like when characters say, yeah, like we can hear it. But I, I'm wondering like what you guys say, because <laughs> it's so regional. It's so in that part of the country. And I don't mm-hmm. know how to pronounce it. I don't know how to do it. And now I'm going to have to think about it. I know. Um, like, it's more does... always just accepted it as before is a sort of general tone of agreement. Yeah, because most, I think, Americans, we just say, oh, yeah. And then keep reading, right? Uh, Yeah, like we really phonetically letter by letter. But I'm like, I don't think that's how they do it. Mm. I think it's, I think it's either like a yeah or a huh, like like you did, where it's all blurred together. Yeah, that's what I've always sort of heard. Okay, in my head, I think. Right? (laughs) I don't know the chicken or the egg. We we need to find out how this. (laughs) We need a proper. Well, there's only one way to be absolutely sure, and that's to get into the audience and ask him. Right? I know, we gotta ask. But I wonder if you can ask some of your actor friends if they've ever done a, a main accent and if they know. I'll ask around. <laughs> I'll ask around. I know somebody that does specialise in um in American accents. Oh, that's nice. So I'll ask her, see what she uh see what she makes of it. A Y U H. we've seen it like ten thousand times in his novels. Yeah. 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 Ooh, there's so many things that could be. So, yeah, thank you so much, Simon. Where can we find, where can we hear more of your brilliance and fun? Where what are you up to with Matt? Uh, we are just about to conclude our read along of it, which is on the podcast entitled King Size, which I believe is available from uh, many good audio sources, including Spotify. You you can tell who's the, the technical brains in this operation, can't you? Because it ain't me. Oh, Lord. Yeah. If it wasn't for Matt's technical ability and application skill, this thing would never happen. But I can tell you it's available on Spotify because that's where I found the underrated Stephen King podcast. Yay! So, but yes, that, that will be our, um, our, our our next episode. When um, Well, actually, we've got... We're, we're doing part four and then part five, so we're nearly at the end um, of the absolute doorstop roller coaster that is it. I mean, no, seriously, that there are there are doors that you could you could use. Not that you would, but you there are doors that I could I could prevent from closing if I use this. Not that I'd ever say do anything so sacrilegious. But um, unlike some people I could mention who have used various Stephen King novels to prop up furniture, we won't talk about them right now. Thank you so much for being an amazing guest. I so appreciate your time. And I will have a link to the King Size Pod and where you can hear more about Simon and Matt and their endeavors to read King. But that's uh, that's all we got. That's a wrap. That's going to wrap up my amazing conversation with actor and podcaster Simon B. I hope you guys had as much fun as I did because, oh my gosh, so much joy and laughter and what a fantastic guest. 
please visit the show notes for links to the king size pod so you can hear what matt and simon are up to next their episodes on the it read through are particularly stellar and really really excellent highly recommend you give them a listen until then for our show if you haven't yet shared it with a friend please do so and if you would be so kind to head over to apple Podcasts and give us a five star as well as perhaps type down some warm and pleasant thoughts about your listening experience for the year of underrated stephen king that would be a total joy. We would appreciate that greatly. But going forward, I am working on finishing up my episode notes for the upcoming From a Buick 8. I know it's been a little while in the making, but I've been a little occupado uh, making some friends and, and doing some constant reader interviews, but I promise we are getting back to the novels and the source material. So From a Buick 8 is coming up rather soon. And then I believe in May I will. I can't wait anymore. I must rejoin the quartet and regale with Roland for Wizard and Glass. That's going to be our May novel. We're going to do it. We're going to dive in. So stay tuned for From a View of Kate and get ready for Wizard and Glass. So get your copies out. Please email the show at underratedsk. If you haven't already, please say hi and let me know any uh, first-timer Wizard and Glass reading tips because it's my first time. I am very excited. I am very nervous, but most of all, looking forward to sharing all of it with you. Thank you guys so much. Take care wherever you are, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.